0: Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible this morning, if you'll turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Now we're going to get into the Word. Let's continue to pray for our team right now that left on Friday for Lebanon. Remember, last week we saw that Jesus visited Lebanon and Syria. Right now, Austin and a group from our church are over there ministering, so let's take a moment to pray for our, our church uh, for those that are not well, for those that are struggling, many of you are here, but you have personal pain, and the Lord really does answer prayer. The Bible says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and as we draw near to God through faith and prayer, He does amazing things, and we'd love to pray with you if some of you have burdens on your heart, or if, you know, there are people here who would gladly come alongside and minister to you and, and, and help you to bring your burdens to the Lord, so let's just go to Him together. Lord, the Bible says that you are a very present help in trouble, and a lot of people live life without God, and they don't think they need him. But sometimes, Father, you bring us to that place where we realize how much we need you. So we ask you today, Lord, to work in the hearts, especially of those who are hurting. Bring them your comfort that comes only through Jesus Give them strength and let them know that you will never um, turn aside those. Jesus, you said anyone who comes to you, you won't cast them out. We thank you for our church family. We thank you that we're a body and a fellowship and we have gifts of the spirit to minister to each other. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to continue to advance the gospel, particularly as we've been focusing on evangelism and maturing disciples. Lord, we pray for our Lebanon team that you will strengthen them, that you will protect them, and that they can be a real encouragement to the Christians over in Lebanon and Syria. We're so thankful, Lord, for the partnership we have with them, and many of them are suffering severely and willing to to give their lives for Christ. May we be inspired by their example. Father, we pray for our country. You told us in the Bible that we should pray for those in authority over us, and there are so many things going on in this country. It's spinning out of control. We pray for our leaders. You said righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. We pray that you will turn the church in America back to the Lord and bring revival. May the Christians in this community and in this country, may we be a salt and a light. And Father, we we don't deserve it. We deserve your wrath but we pray for your mercy and that we as Christians could continue to live safely, as Paul said, live quiet lives, and may we do so with dignity. I want to pray for our church that we will help help one another, and especially those who are struggling in their marriages or parenting or health. May the Spirit of God use us to encourage one another, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you now to join me in Mark chapter 8. We've, we've called this study Clarifying Jesus, and we're, we're reaching sort of, if you're just joining us, you're reaching the kind of the climactic point of the book. And for some of you, it's kind of like my wife and kids hate this when I join a movie late. And I go, wait, what about, who's that? And they're like, be quiet, because I, I, I don't know what's going on. So you could go back and read Mark, and I trust that many of you are reading the Bible. That, that's, we hope that all of you are learning how to read the Bible and apply it to your life. If not, we wanna help you learn how to do that. You don't need to be a seminary grad to read the Bible, but we're at this critical point in the life of Jesus, and let me remind you, when Jesus came to earth, for the first 30 years, he did no miracles, but when he was 30, he got baptized and he began to do miracles. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he began to preach the gospel. He began to tell people about the coming kingdom of God, and he invited them to become his followers but one of the things that was incredibly important is to clarify who he was, and that's true today. Most people know about Jesus, but most people don't really know who Jesus is, and they don't have an answer to the second question, who is he to you, and and how does that affect you? Ironically, Jesus calls these 12 disciples, and we're probably about a year and a half into his ministry. Remember, he started his ministry at 30 years old, He was crucified at 33, 33 and a half. So he only ministered for three and a half years. And he had a number of things that he was doing, but one of them was to train these 12 apostles to take over when he left. And so as we're reading through Mark, we can see that these guys are really struggling to figure out who Jesus is. They they somehow have been enamored by his miracles and his persuasive authority to follow him. But what we're going to find is they just can't seem to figure out, who is this guy? What, what's going on here? And so as we've been reading through Mark, Mark emphasizes how the demons keep going. We know who you are, but the disciples keep going, who are you? And so we're reaching that moment when they're having what we call an aha moment. It's, it's, any of you who have ever struggled with vision? Realize that it's, it's tough. Say if you get something in your eye... Um, I've had a lot of skin cancer, so I have to like slather my face with sunscreen. That's why I'm so pale. But often in sweating, yesterday I was uh, hitting tennis balls off a wall and, and the, the sweat was getting in my eyes and because of that sunscreen, it was terrible. I couldn't see, I was, I was like clouded over. And so in this chapter, we're gonna see this prevailing theme of sight and blindness and clarification. And so join with me. We're gonna begin in verse 10. <clears throat> It says, immediately Jesus entered the boat with his disciples, and he came to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, this would have been on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And the first thing we're going to see here is that the religious leaders, the people that should have best known who Jesus was, completely lack any insight into who he is, and they lack their faith. And so they actually come out in a provocative way, like, Who do you think you are? Show us a sign to prove you're going around doing all this stuff. So this is a really critical moment. They've had a lot of time to watch Jesus and they've formed their opinion. Look at verse 11. And the Pharisees came out and they began to argue with him. So they were just looking to to provoke him and to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, People do that. They go, God, if you're real, give me a sign. And Jesus actually sometimes uses signs to bring people to himself. He said that when he was on earth. He said, if you don't believe my words, believe me on account of my works. Yeah, a lot of people could claim to be the son of God, but I don't see anybody else raising the dead or healing the blind or walking on water. But there is a place where the Lord will definitely not give signs, Because when you think about it, the essence of a relationship with God is faith, right? You don't need to have faith if you have all of the empirical evidence of signs and miracles. So Jesus knew that these guys were not genuinely seeking to have a relationship with him. Because he says they asked for a sign testing him. They weren't asking for a sign because they were interested in following him. And I want to remind you that those of you who are talking to your friends about Christ, you'll often find this. There are two types of conversations. Some are with seekers and some are with scoffers. Scoffers are already hardened in their mind and no matter what evidence you give them, you could answer their question, they're just gonna come up with another one. And at some point you have to ask them, are you really interested in meeting Jesus? Do you want to surrender to him? Do you wanna believe in him? Or are you simply just putting up smoke screens? And so in this case, Jesus is like, I'm not, I'm not going there. In fact, look what it says sighing deeply in his spirit. Now again, I've said this before that Jesus was a man. He was human as well as God. And so we find these emotive words. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. And it literally has the idea of someone who's in a situation where they're pushed to the limits of faithfulness. Like, like Jesus is like, he doesn't know what else to do in a certain sense as a human. They're like, show us a sign. And he's been doing miracles. So he just. And you know what? Something that struck me Jesus sighed, but he never sinned. See, sometimes when we get pushed to that limit of faithfulness, that sigh is right before we unload, right? Then we feel we have a right to lose it on somebody. And so, what a good example for us. Jesus was grieved, he was angry. He was probably frustrated in the sense of saying, what more can I do? But he doesn't sin. So he says, why did this generation seek for a sign? No sign will be given to this generation. In fact, it's interesting, the way he words it in the original language, he simply says this, if a sign should be given, that's it. Show us a sign. And Jesus goes, if a sign should be given. And it stops there. That was an idiom in that day which the implication was, let me die, right? If that happens, let me die. So Jesus is so certain, I'm not giving you a sign that he throws that out there. And they knew what he meant. If if I give you a sign, let me die, I'm not doing it. So our Bibles just say, no sign will be given. And he just turns, leaves them, and gets in the boat. This is a critical point. He's sort of at the point of being done with the leadership, right? Remember they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But now, we, we, we come back, we see the total lack of faith of religious leaders, but now Jesus is with his 12 and expecting maybe to see some faith on their part, but we're gonna go, wow, they're not a whole lot further along than the Pharisees in terms of their faith. So let's look at the lack of faith of the disciples. Now remember, he just fed 4,000 people, right? So look at the next verse. They forgot to take bread. And they didn't have more than one loaf in the boat with them. You know, that's, we've all done that, right? Gone on the picnic, dang, you know, I left it on the counter, right? And he was, he was giving orders to them. Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And first of all, do you ever do that to your spouse when they're driving, watch it. It's so aggravating. Watch it. You're like, you're like, I see it. I know, right? Now, sometimes it's necessary. Like, we almost plowed into that, and we're all like, oh, no, I had that, right? But, but, but Jesus just suddenly bursts out with a warning. Watch out. And they're like, for what? And he goes, for leaven. And you're like, what? Leaven is yeast. Why do I need to watch out for yeast? Now, there's a background here. In the Bible, leaven usually stood for something evil. In the Old Testament, there's nothing sinful about yeast, but in the Old Testament, remember at Passover, they had to remove the leaven from the bread. They would have unleavened bread, and so leaven became a symbol of something evil. So you would remove all evil as you celebrated the sacrifice of the lamb. Here, though, Jesus puts a little spin on leaven that that they totally miss. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Now, if it was just these guys, we would go, yeah, they're evil. Watch out for how evil they are. But then he says, and the leaven of Herod. And you go, well, wait a minute. What do the Pharisees and Herod have in common? Now, we do know earlier from the book that Herod had killed John the Baptist, but we're still trying to figure out What is this meaning of yeast here? So I'm gonna suggest that probably the best answer is what do the Pharisees and Herod have in common? Is they both disbelieve Jesus. They both don't understand who Jesus is and they oppose Jesus. So Jesus turns from these Pharisees who are opposing him, gets in the boat and says to the guys, watch out, For the Pharisees and Herod, they both oppose me with unbelief. Don't you do that, right? Be careful of that. But they totally miss it. They began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. They're like, is Jesus like gluten-free or should we get whole grain? Like, what, what does he mean by yeast, right? They're like, it's going right over their head. And Jesus, aware of this, he knows what they're thinking. Remember, he's God. You're like, wait a minute. So knowing what they're thinking and what they're discussing, he says, why are you discussing that you have no bread? Don't you, and I'll notice, don't you yet see? Don't you yet understand? Do you have a hardened heart? There are actually gonna be nine references in this section to sight and seeing and vision and blindness, right? Don't, don't you yet see, no, see what? See what, the bread, no. Do you not see who I am? Can you not understand yet who I am? The, the, he uses different words, see and understand, two different Greek words. Don't you grasp who I am? Why are you discussing that you have no bread? And then he gives a reason why we sometimes fail to understand. He goes, do you have a hardened heart? Wow, that's pretty, like, we use that term, you know, somebody says, yeah, well, you know, I I, I broke up with her by a text, you know, you're like, wow, man, that's hard-hearted. But when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, it is a bad idea to allow your heart to harden. So all of us, you could kind of picture your heart, right? Picture it like susceptible. So The same sun that shines down on things, if it's on wax, it softens it. If it's on clay, it hardens it. So all of us have to kind of think about my heart and and my heart's relationship with Jesus. Am I increasingly growing to understand him with a soft, obedient heart? Or am I keeping him at a distance, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and growing a hardened heart? And so Jesus quotes from from Ezekiel. He says, having eyes to see and having ears, do you not hear? Now he begins to diagnose part of their problem. He goes, you're not learning to put two and two together. One of the reasons that sometimes we don't grow in our commitment, our trust in Jesus is because everything that happened in the past, we totally freak out and forget. So Jesus goes, guys, let's let's, let's just do some rehearsal. Don't you remember when I took up five loaves and fed 5,000, how many baskets did you have left? You're worried about not having bread. They're like, well, yeah, we had 12. He goes, okay, note that. And he says, what about when I fed 4,000? How many baskets did you have left? And they said, seven. And then he goes, do you not get it? Do you not understand who I am? Right? So, Interestingly now, I love this. Mark then comes to a miracle of Jesus. This miracle of Jesus, this is the only gospel that has it. And it's very important to understand why Mark includes this miracle right here. Because at first, it looks like, man, even Jesus blew it sometimes. Even Jesus didn't always get his miracles right. So let's look at this miracle. Now just remember, he's going, can't you see, can't you see, can't you see? And then look at the text. Verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him. Ah, blind man, hmm. And they entreated him to touch him. And taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. Now, that's interesting. Why did Jesus take him outside the village? We don't know if he let anybody come with him. But I, I do want to suggest one thing. Sometimes Jesus will get alone with you when he wants to do business with you. And he'll do it the easy way or the hard way. Sometimes he'll put you on your back, right? But when Jesus has something that he wants to get through to you, he sometimes needs you to get alone with him. And for some of you, right, you're avoiding that appointment. You know you're long due with, for some time alone with Jesus. And you're filling your head and your time with anything to distract from that. And sometimes Jesus just wants to take you by the hand and say, we just need to get alone and and I want to speak to you. Don't run from that. So Jesus takes this guy aside, and then he does something really weird. It says he spits on his eyes, and he lays his hand upon him. And like, what? That's gross, right? Does Jesus not understand that this is very unsanitary? Well, there is some background to this. There was a belief in that time among the Greeks and Romans that spittle did have some healing properties. In fact, there's an extra biblical document in which which a blind man asked one of the emperors, would you put some of your spittle on my cheeks? So remember, sometimes when we read the Bible, don't think our context, like spit your eye, but somehow Jesus is accommodating perhaps their background of understanding that there's healing properties in spittle. But if so, it's again, because I want you to see who I am. So then Jesus asks him, do you see anything? Now this is where it gets really weird. It says he looked up and he said, I see men, for I'm seeing them like trees walking about. Wait, what? So first of all, that tells me a couple things I think, right? I don't think this guy was blind all of his life, right? Because how would you know what a tree or a man looks like if you've never seen anything? So maybe this guy went blind at some time in his past, right? If, if we were talking about it today, would probably say, I see a little bit, man, but it's really fuzzy. You know, it's kind of when you're, as John Beagle used that, I love this illustration John used, it's kind of like when you're at the optometrist and he goes, he puts down that first thing and you're like, you see anything? Well, yeah, a little bit. Then he goes, how about now, right? So, so this guy goes, yeah, I can see, but man, it's still really blurry. Now you go, wait a minute. Jesus, did you, did you mess up here? Did you have it on seven frequency? It should have been on nine. Like, how, how, how'd you blow that, Jesus? Did, did, did you not use enough spittle? Like, come on, you, get your miracle book out and find out what you did. What, what did you miss? What magic potion? They're, they're, they're like confused, right? Verse Verse 25. Then again, he laid his hands upon his eyes and he looked intently. Now, there's strong language here. He saw clearly is what that means. He was restored. And then in Mark goes, in case you missed it, and he began to see everything clearly. So there's a real strong emphasis, like suddenly, like bam, now things are crystal clear. Okay? Now, some of you are going, wait, I, I get this. He didn't do that because he just messed up. He had it on seven when he should have had it on nine. He did this on purpose. Yes, of course. He did it on purpose to help us to understand this, that clarifying Jesus is often a process, right, where we begin to get more interest in him and we begin to explore him, but then at some point we truly see who he is. Now, not everybody has that dynamic aha moment that we sing about, right? Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. But anybody who's a Christian can sort of identify, I was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Most Americans, when they come into a relationship with Jesus Christ that's genuine and saving and and they're regenerated, Don't, don't start with this, I never heard of Jesus. I mean, if you went around in the mall and said, I'm doing a survey, you ever heard of Jesus? Most people would be like, of course, right? But they don't get who he is. So we're coming to this moment in the book, right? So Jesus heals the guy, and he says, don't even enter a village. His normal way of saying, I don't want people to know who I am yet, so don't, don't, don't make a big fuss. But now in verse 27, here's where we're reaching that moment. And this is like, if you're watching a movie, this is it, all this time, they're going, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And now, Jesus goes out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And I never understood this, but as I was studying this week, I realized that, wait, Caesarea Philippi was totally pagan, right? This was a Roman colony. Those of you who have been to the Promised Land know that it's, it's, it's north of, of the promised land, right? And yet, it's gonna be in a Gentile area, owned by the Romans, that Jesus is gonna disclose his identity. Like, Jesus, that's bad publicity. Timing and location, location, location. These guys need to figure out who you are in Jerusalem. And Jesus goes, no. I'm gonna have them figure out who I am in a Roman, godless, pagan area. And I think part of this would have been very encouraging to the readers of Mark, who were probably Romans themselves. Wow, it was in a Roman place that they kind of figured out who Jesus is. So Jesus does something pretty interesting. And and sometimes when we want to draw something out of a person, it's, it's really hard at first to get very personal, right? We've all had that, right? Somebody comes to you and goes, I have this friend, and they have this problem and they cut themselves, or they have this, or they do that, and so I don't know what to tell this friend, and eventually, you know, at the right moment, you go, are we we talking about you, and and, you know, it's embarrassing, but sometimes we'll we'll go, yeah, yeah, I was embarrassed, right, so Jesus doesn't go, all right, who am I, right, he starts by going, let's just, let's just work our way into this, who do other people say that I am, well, that's, that's a comfort level for the disciples at all. It's a great question, Jesus. You know, some people actually, uh, they think you're John the Baptist. Like, like Herod, that's what Herod thinks, Jesus. You know, he killed John the Baptist, but word on the street is you're doing these miracles. He thinks you're John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus, um, some people think you're Elijah. Now, to the Jews, Elijah was the man. They had a tradition about Elijah, Elijah that, that was pretty profound, like he's there for, for his people, and he's going to come before the Messiah. So they're like, yes. And some people think you're one of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is like, okay. So we're, I, I, that's cool. Now, let me take, take it home. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. This is the aha moment. The beginning of this book begins with this verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah. Peter finally gets it. Wait a minute, you're not just a man. You're the Messiah. Now, in the other gospels, Peter gets a good grade. Jesus goes, you're right, Simon. However, lest you want to get, you know, to be the valedictorian of your class, you need to understand something. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Like you're not smarter than these other guys. My Father in heaven revealed it to you, right? And so Peter needed to early on understand, you didn't figure this out on your own, it's because just like I touched that guy and opened his eyes, I opened your eyes. So at this point you'd be like, hallelujah, this is awesome. They finally get it. He is the Messiah, right? But in fact, Jesus is going to drop a bomb, right? Because in his mind, when he said, I finally get it, Jesus, you're the Messiah, right? If you ask this question, what then did he think about Jesus? What was his view about Messiah, right? And in all the extra-biblical literature that we have, there isn't any evidence that the Jews even had a category for a suffering Messiah. Oh, they had a category for Messiah. He was going to be bad to the bone. He was royal, he was reigning, he was powerful, and he was going to overthrow the Romans. So they had this clear picture from the Old Testament that Messiah would finally come and deliver them from these jerks, right? Imagine if another country, right, came and, you know, say we were the Ukraine and, and Russia comes in and sort of tries to take you over. Imagine the resentment that you would feel in your own country, or if you're watching the news, the, the resentment and struggle in Kashmir right now as, as India and Pakistan are fighting... Everybody wants their independence, so, so the Jews were longing for independence from a Messiah, right? And so on the one hand, Peter's like, we get it now, you're the Messiah. And that's why they were jockeying like, when you kick these Roman butts, can I have the office next to you? Can I, can I sit on the throne and we're gonna rule? And Jesus like, okay, no. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, whom they just identified as a Messiah, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. There is no way that even had a category for Peter. What are you talking about? You're going to kill. You're not going to be killed. You're going to bring suffering to those Romans. You're not going to take suffering. This was so shocking to Peter. It says in verse 32, Jesus stated the matter plainly. He's like, no, I didn't stutter, right? I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised up on the third day. And it says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He didn't even pull him aside and say, Jesus, that's hard for me to understand. He literally goes, Jesus, I need to talk to you. Come, come here, just stop talking like that. I don't know what's in your head, but you are not going to die, right? He rebuked Can I just tell you something? It's a bad idea to correct Jesus, right? <laughs> Save you some oxygen. Bad idea to correct Jesus, right? So, so Jesus whirls around, and he rebukes Peter. And next week, we're going to talk about that because they had a a terrible misunderstanding about messiahship, right? And next week we're going to say that Jesus is going to go, and you really have a terrible understanding about discipleship, right? Because you think following me is going to be ruling and reigning and pleasure and power. No, no. Following me is going to be suffering and serving and i'm about to go to the cross for your sins and then i'm going to ask you to take up your cross and follow me wow these guys have a long way to go but so do we and so i I want to suggest that as we wind this down it's important for each of us to ask this question who is jesus right like i would hope even before the lord opened my eyes to get saved I knew how to say this because I went to a church. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he arose from the dead. I could say that with my lips, but I truly didn't understand what that meant. And so I want to ask all of you to think about, who is Jesus? Do you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's divine, that, that there never was a time that he didn't exist, that he came down from heaven and became a real human, a God-man who lived on this earth in real flesh and blood and who went up to that cross and shed his blood and was raised from the dead, okay? Now, that's only the first question because the fact is the devil knows that much, Right? But the more important question is then to ask this, who is Jesus to you, right? Who is Jesus to you? Not what do others say about him, not what do we say about him, what do you say about him? And I want to hope that if you don't get it, that God's opening your eyes to get this, that number one, if you're going to know who Jesus is personally, number one, you have to meet him as a suffering savior, okay? You'll never understand who Jesus is apart from the cross. There are too many people who are so mixed up that they love the teachings of Jesus. Oh, I think Jesus was a great teacher. That was awesome, do unto others, right? But if you ask them, hey, do you believe this? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. Oh, no, of course not, right? That's way too narrow. You remember C.S. Lewis said that, he goes, you can't just accept some of the teachings of Jesus. If you don't accept all of them, he's either a liar, a lunatic, or a poached egg. How can you go, you yeah, know, I believe this, but I don't believe that? So, so start with this. Is the, is the crucified Jesus who you know? Because there's a lot of Jesus's out there. In fact, the Apostle Paul said, I don't know which Jesus you're following to the Corinthians. He goes, but somebody preached to you another Jesus, right? So the entry point of understanding is understand that cross. Right? And by the way, if you're already like, why is he telling me this? I'm already saved. You and I should never get over that. Jesus, I hope for each one of you is your precious suffering Savior. Right? If you don't relish the cross, if, you don't, if you're not in any way moved by his precious blood, if you don't understand what he did up there, then you're missing the most important thing. You'll never set foot in heaven. Until you understand the cross, that on that cross, Jesus paid for our sins. He said, it's finished. He didn't say, you do purgatory or be good and I'll split it with you. Jesus paid it all. And so as Christians, that should be our heart and soul. Never get over that. That's what we're going to sing in heaven. The moment I move away from the the cross, I'm, I'm going away from God. Recalculate, recalculate. Live in the cross's shadow Every day, preach the gospel to yourself. Jesus is not just good teacher. He's the crucified one. And Jesus is the one that is our life now. Paul said, the life I live in my flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So as a Christian, he's a suffering savior. But secondly, it's really important to also know that Jesus is the risen Lord. You can't separate them everybody wants a savior if it's convenient, right? If it's, there's no cost, if I don't have to change, if I can get free hell insurance, if I can just say a prayer and raise my hand, I'm in. If you could just give me that ticket that says, do this, and you go to heaven. Thank you, Jesus, right? Jesus is not only a suffering savior, but he said, on the third day I'll rise again. Right? Jesus, if you understand him correctly, is a Lord and Savior. He can't just be a Savior. Right? Now, what causes most people to surrender to his Lordship is starting with understanding of his sufferings. You, you, you would go, why would I want to surrender to Jesus until you realize, well, look at what he suffered for you. Jesus is the risen Lord. The Bible says to be a Christian, you must confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, what does it mean for him to be Lord? Well, start with this. Jesus said, why would you call me Lord if you won't even do what I say? So for some of you, you got to do some soul searching. Do I just I say, yeah, Jesus is my Savior. Grandma told me I said a prayer at Backyard Bible Club. Or do you believe that the Savior was crucified for you, paid for your sins, and you've cast yourself upon him in faith, but you also surrender to follow him? You believe that Christ is coming again, and the Bible says he died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. And so we always are inviting people to come to Jesus. You could do that right now. You could come to Christ. You could have that moment where you go, I think I get it. Jesus paid for me. I want to become his follower. I want to be forgiven. I asked you to pray last week because I was meeting with someone at 2.30. When I met with that person for an hour and a half, when, when we got done, they said, wow, I feel like Jesus has been there all the time. And all I was talking about is the cross. He died for you. He wants to save you. And this person says to me, you know what? I've been pushing Jesus away. Now I want him to become the center of my life. I'm like, wow, I didn't even say that. He was getting it. Campus Crusade has a little illustration in the four spiritual laws. It has a little throne, and on the throne is an S for self. How long is self going to be on your throne? And then in the next picture, it has a throne with a cross. Christ becoming your Lord and Savior. And so that, that's the entry point, and, and if you're not clear on that, Jesus is offering you life. Throw yourself on him in faith, trust, and surrender. Lord Jesus, I believe, I wanna be saved. Thank you for opening my eyes. But now let me close with this. As a Christian, there's this constant journey to grow in that, okay? Here's what I wanna encourage you to begin to pray. I try to pray this on a regular basis. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul prayed this for Christians. He said, since God has opened the eyes of your heart, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, I pray that God will give you a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of him. Does that make sense? It's not enough to just go, oh, I got it 10 years ago. Was blind, but now I see. You keep getting it. You keep growing in faith and comprehension of Jesus. It's, that's, it's all about Jesus. Every day, you and I are learning All through the New Testament, it tells us, lay aside the things and fix your eyes on Jesus. Paul says in Colossians 3.1, set your affections on things above where Christ is. Make your life about Christ and about enjoying Him and fellowshipping with Him and feeding on Him and growing in your relationship and your understanding with Him and then responding with commitments of faith. So that when the Lord Jesus asks you to do something or stop doing something, you're not constantly fighting with him. No, I don't want to. Because he's so precious. And you're getting used to following him. And so as disciples, Jesus is wonderfully showing us who he is. Hey, I'm your Lord and Savior. I called you to myself. I bought you with my blood. Keep me in the center of your life. We all need that. Jesus said to the church at Revelation, yeah, yeah, you're hard workers. But he goes, you lost your first love. Or he says to the church at Laodicea, you know, my problem is you've become lukewarm. Maybe this will be a good closing illustration. A marriage relationship. There are times in a relationship where you're sort of, you're, you're kind of missing, right? And you got to do something about it. you got to repent. And so as Christians, for all of us, I pray that the Lord will reveal himself to you more and more, and that you will respond to him with faith and obedience, and that you and I will live in the shadow of the cross, and that whatever Jesus asks us to do, because next week he's gonna say, all right, now we're gonna talk about discipleship. I'm gonna go die for you. I want you to be willing to die for me. So I hope you'll read ahead, but let's close in prayer and just thank the Lord. If this makes sense to you, thank the Lord. Thank you for opening my eyes, and help me to grow and know you better. If for the first time the Lord has opened your eyes in a clear way to understand Jesus as Lord and Savior, why not tell him right now that you believe that you want to be saved, that you want to follow him? Accept his free gift of salvation because he went to the cross for you. Jesus paid it all, and he wants to save your soul. And now as brothers and sisters in Christ, Maybe you can't see Jesus through your tears. Maybe you can't see him because of your anger. Maybe you've lost sight of him because you're hurt. Maybe you've lost sight of him because you're just chasing things that don't matter. But you want to clarify Jesus. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart more deeply, that we would talk and think about Jesus on a daily basis, that our faith would not be in sight, but that we would walk by trust in the word of God. Thank you that it's through the Bible that we clarify Jesus. Lord, may we grow in our love for Jesus, our desire to share him with the world. Thank you for the patience that you showed your disciples and the patience that you're showing to us. Open the eyes of our children and our grandchildren and everyone in this church. May we be on this journey together to follow Christ fully into the kingdom of God, and we give you the glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.